Before I get started, I just want to take this opportunity to thank all of you who you know, have really made my and Nikki's transition from UCCD to Redeemer just so easy. And uh, you know, it's really been such a joy coming across here. Um, you know, we think about when we, when we first moved into our apartments, those of you who you know, brought us meals, who have been praying for us, we are really feeling so blessed to, to be a part of this congregation, and it's been such a joy getting to know so many of you. And as I look around and I'm seeing a lot of new faces, you know, myself and Nikki are definitely looking forward to get to know you as well. Um, and we are just so happy that we are able to, to be a part of this congregation and to be able to serve with all of you. Um, <clears throat> when, when Nikki and I first, first moved into our apartment, with all the moving and unpacking of boxes and changing things around, one thing, one word seemed to come up more and more often. And that was the word need. So, you know, as we looked around our apartments, we, re- we realized that we really, really need more storage space. Um, as we looked around our apartments and realized it was a lot bigger than what, what our previous apartment was like, we realized that we can have more people over and we really, really need a bigger table. And, you know, even as we go through all our unpacking and the the empty boxes seem to be stacking higher and higher, we realize we really, really need a place to stack these empty boxes. Um, And that that whole process started to get me thinking. It really doesn't matter who you are or where in the world you are, whether you're sitting in a five star hotel ballroom in Dubai or if you're in a small little village in India. No matter who you are, there is always something that you need. And Abraham Maslow, he kind of took this idea of needing something one step further, and he came with an entire hierarchy of needs, Um, starting with our most basic needs, things like needing to sleep, needing to eat, needing to breathe, uh, moving on to need to to feel safe, Uh, then our need to feel love um, and belonging, Uh, our need for esteem, and finally, our need for self-actualization, the need to reach our full potential. Others take a different approach. They don't go quite so complicated. They see it as far more simple. Our need is simply to be needed. What about you all sitting here this morning? What do you feel is the one thing that you really, really need? Is it A promotion at work? Is it a spouse, a husband or a wife? Is it complete financial security? Are these the things that you truly need in your life? Yes, they are important, but are they our greatest need? What is our greatest need? To help us answer this question, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke is, for those of you who are maybe fairly new to reading your Bible, Luke is the third, the third book in the New Testament, um, and where the other three Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and John, are written from eyewitness perspectives, which are written by people who were with Jesus, Luke's is slightly different. Um, he was uh, a careful researcher. His Gospel is based on historical investigations that he conducted himself. So he spent a lot of time speaking to eyewitnesses. He spent a lot of time researching different data. 
Um, you know, he was comparing stories. Um, so we know that the Gospel of Luke that we're going to look at today is a very well-researched, factual account of the events that took place uh, during Jesus' time on earth. And as we go through the passage, I want us to look at three specific points. Firstly, earnestly seeking God, an example of that, an encounter with Jesus' divinity, our second point, and our third point, an encounter with Jesus' authority. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Uh, Just to kind of give you a a bit of a background, Judaism during this time, uh, during Jesus' time, was a a real mix of social, political, and religious ideas. And in general terms, we can speak of four distinct movements or kind of life opinions that were really popular during this time. So, firstly, we had the zealots. They were very much your revolutionaries. You know, their idea of ridding Israel of Roman occupation was with the use of violence and force. They truly believed that this was the only way that Israel could be finally liberated. Secondly, you had the Sadducees. They took a slightly different approach. As wealthy priests and aristocrats, rather than fighting Rome, their idea was to conserve their wealth and their power through compromise with Rome. Most of the members of the Sanhedrin that we read about throughout the scriptures uh, were part of the Sadducee group. And in many ways, it was the Sadducees who could be described as the least religious group of of this bunch, um, as is evidenced by their their non-belief in the resurrection of the dead. However, they were considered to be right towards the top of the Jewish society uh, during this time. And they were far more concerned with present-day affairs than speculation on the life to come. And in the Gospels, we see that it is mainly the Sadducees who are the opponents of Jesus at the time of his trial and death. 
We then come across the two groups that we are introduced to here in the text. The Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, the Pharisees were in many ways the idealists of Jewish society. They weren't priests, but their goal was to keep the Jewish nation faithful to the Mosaic law. They had developed a tradition that gave rulings on how the law applied to a variety of possible situations that were not necessarily addressed in Scripture. They did not believe in compromise with the Romans like the Sadducees or in violence and revolution like the Zealots. And then finally we see the teachers of the law. They were really just religious lawyers who supported the development of this extra-biblical tradition that the Pharisees had developed. So these were the types of teachings and general ideologies that were around during the time that our passage is set in. And then Jesus comes along, and his teaching is completely different to the man-centered teachings and false ideas that people were generally listening to and hearing at the time. So by this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus had already been teaching in many towns. Uh, you know, he'd been going around to different villages, speaking in synagogues. And he had already uh, healed people who were sick. Uh, he had uh, cured people of evil spirits. People had seen how even the evil spirits obeyed Jesus. So uh, one of the things that essentially stood out to people about his teaching was his authority. We look at Luke chapter 4, verse 36. tells us, All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. But most importantly, Jesus was going around preaching about the good news of the kingdom of God. So, at the beginning of our passage, Jesus is back in his hometown of Galilee, and a large crowd has gathered at a house uh, seeking him. Uh, now, given Jesus' reputa- growing reputation uh, for being able to perform miracles and heal people, uh, many commentators suggest that this large crowd was most likely there uh, to be healed of some sort of illness or some sort of ailment. You know, they just wanted Jesus to, to cure them. But as we'll see in this passage, that not everyone who was there, who had travelled to be there, um, they weren't necessarily there to be healed or necessarily even agreed with what Jesus had been preaching. It's at this point that we are introduced to the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law. Now, they had also heard of Jesus and of his growing fame, and they had come from all over Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem to hear what he had to say. They essentially sat by as spectators, censors and spies to pick up something that they could accuse Jesus of doing um, that was against their Jewish laws and traditions. And as well as, as we read uh, in the passage in verse 17, we notice that the power of the Lord was with him to heal the sick. Now we know uh, from previous texts that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when he was baptized in the River Jordan, we were told how the Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And in chapter 4, Luke begins by telling us that Jesus himself was full of the Holy Spirit. But what Luke seems to be suggesting to his readers here is that in this whole scenario that we find ourselves in, there's this air of expectation, this feeling that something incredible is about to happen. 
And the picture that that Luke describes for us confirms how Jesus has spread to such an extent that this house is so full you can't even get through the front door. Um, In verse 18, Luke describes how some men came along carrying, uh, carrying with them a man who was paralyzed and they wanted to lay him before Jesus. What's interesting to notice here is what it was that brought these men to Jesus. Jesus' reputation and a faith that he would be able to heal their friend who was crippled. Verse 19. When they could not find a way to do this, they went up onto the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. These men right here demonstrated the kind of perseverance that comes from faith. That even though there was no clear way in into this house to get before Jesus, they were not going to give up. They were not going to let that stop them. They had a faith in Jesus as the one who could graciously provide to meet their friend's need. And they had gone to great lengths to get to him because they were so sure that Jesus would be able to heal him. I wonder what about you sitting here this morning? You know, is there something that you are truly, truly passionate about? Is there a goal that no matter what happens, you will let nothing get in your way to stop you from reaching it? So often we hear stories of people who, who have made it to the top of their profession. You know, they've reached their, the pinnacle of their particular discipline because they are filled with this, this desire for, for money, for business, for for pleasure or for greatness. The earnest desire for God is completely crowded out by other pursuits. How much of this desire prevents you from spending time with God? How much of this desire prevents you from seeking Him? As we come to, to back to our passage, you know, we see that this doorway is blocked and these men have made their way up onto the, the top of the house where they proceed to dig a rather large hole in the roof. Now, can you just imagine what it must have been like being inside that house? You know, you, you're sitting there, you're probably completely squashed up because the house is so full, and you, you're intently listening to what Jesus has to say. And suddenly, bits of clay tile begin to fall from the ceiling. You look around kind of nervously. You look at Jesus and he seems completely unfazed, just continues to to go on with what he's saying. You look up again and now there's this massive hole big enough for a man to fit through. And sure enough, a man is being lowered down on his mat right in front of Jesus. You know, you can kind of imagine what must have been going through people's minds. You know, I'm sure some people must have been annoyed at this interruption. Others must have been extremely frustrated because they've been waiting all day to kind of get to the front so they can be healed by Jesus. And here's this guy cutting in front of them. Um, The owner of the house couldn't have been very happy, the fact that he's now got this unwanted skylight. Um, But what is even more surprising is Jesus' response his response to this man who was just lowered down in front of him. It's there in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. 
Isn't that an incredible response to what's going on right here? We really see the kindness and compassion in Christ's response. There is no hint of any inconvenience. There is no hint of any anger. Christ simply has this love for these men who have earnestly sought him out. But that's not what's in the mind of the Pharisees and the teachers that are sitting there. They have something, they're thinking something completely different. You know, they're not concerned with the kindness and compassion that Christ is busy showing here. And that takes us into our next point, an encounter with Jesus' divinity. Verse 21, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. Just note the the reaction of the Pharisees. They immediately address what Jesus' response to the man was, that his sins are forgiven. And they address it with two questions. Firstly, who is this that speaks blasphemy? And who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the second question, who can forgive sins but God alone, I want to come back to in in our third point. So let's just for now look at the first question asked. Who is this that speaks blasphemy? This question in itself carries with it quite a serious charge. To speak anything against God or to even count yourself equal with him in any way carried with it the penalty of death. And as we eventually, as you read through the scriptures, you'll see that it was this basis on which Jesus would eventually be tried and crucified. Now, the possible cause of this reaction by the Pharisees could have been the directness with which Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. After all, here was a man who was nothing more than the son of a carpenter. And it is at this particular point that we encounter the divinity of Jesus. Even though the Pharisees and teachers were keeping their thoughts to themselves, Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. This points us to the fact that Christ is fully God, to be able to know their thoughts. Because we know it is only God who can truly know the condition of a man's heart and what's going on in his mind. It is his right as the one who created us. John chapter 1 reminds us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Christ Jesus is the Word of God. So, what exactly does that mean for us today? How should this truth, this truth shape our day-to-day lives? Well, for one thing, this truth should be, subject, should be a subject of daily and ongoing reflection for each and every one of us. That there is absolutely nothing that we can keep hidden from Christ. Every moment of every day, he reads our actions, our words, and our thoughts. There might be something that you feel you have managed to keep hidden in your life. You may have stolen money from your company. 
and you feel you've gotten away with it, and maybe you have. You know, you may have told a lie to your spouse to, to avoid an unpleasant situation. But no matter how much you feel you have been able to deceive man, the truth is that you can never deceive Christ. At the same time, however, knowing that we have a loving master who knows every thought, word and deed in our lives should come as a great comfort to us and spur us on greatly to do what is pleasing to the Lord. Doing not so in our own strength, but in the strength of Christ. Coming back to our passage, we see that Jesus knew exactly what was on their minds and, was, and knew what they were thinking. He immediately challenged them with a question of their own. In the second half of verse 22, he says, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Jesus is asking why they should even question him at all. Because, let's be honest, it is far easier to say something that cannot be backed up. Like, your sins are forgiven. It's not quite as easy to say something like, get up and walk, and you can't make the man get up and walk. But for many, the issue here is this. Is Jesus' claim of forgiving sins just empty words, or is it the real thing? And if it is real, how can he back it up? So up to now, we have looked at an example of these men who were earnestly seeking Christ, and we have encountered Jesus' divinity. We have seen that his teaching carried with it a weight that people were not used to, and we have seen how he's able to know what is on people's hearts and minds, which leads us to our third point, an encounter with Jesus' authority. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus says to them, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He immediately stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Before Jesus gives the, the, the Pharisees a chance to, to reply to the question he asked in uh, verse 23, that which is easier to say, he lets them know exactly who he is and what authority he has. We see it there in verse 24. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, this particular term, Son of Man, we see mentioned for the first time in this specific context in the book of Daniel. It is the name that Jesus uses to describe who he is. And according to the Daniel passage in that context, as the Son of Man, he is seen as the representative of the saints of the Most High. Jesus then indicates to the Pharisees the extent of his authority as he turns to the paralyzed man and gives three commands. Get up, take your mat, and go home. This man immediately does so, proving to everyone there that Jesus has healed him. Now, let's consider something here. If it is God alone who can forgive sins, which is what the Pharisees were questioning, how does Jesus have this authority? Let's think of it like this. When someone has sinned against you, who is it that has the authority to forgive? 
if I were to do something to Lenny, for example, Glenn would not be able to, he would not have the authority to forgive me on Lenny's behalf because I did, I did it to Lenny. It's only Lenny who would be able to forgive me because he has that authority as the one who was wronged. We know in Psalm 51, the passage that Butch read for us earlier, that all sin is against God. David laments that uh, it is God and God alone that he has sinned against, even though he has had the husband of Bathsheba killed. He realizes that his sin is still ultimately against God, and therefore it is only God who can ultimately forgive sin, which is exactly what the Pharisees are pointing out in verse 21. Now, some questions do need to be asked. If the paralyzed man was able to walk again, then what about what Jesus said about being able to forgive sins? If God is the source of all healing, what does that say about Jesus, who has just healed this man? It tells us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He has the power and authority to transform the situation in this man's life. Not only his physical situation of not being able to walk, but his spiritual one as well. His alienation from God. Christ has the same authority and power to transform the situations in our own lives. And it's at this point here that we start to, to see what Jesus' ministry is all about. Jesus came to fulfill a specific role and purpose. In Jeremiah 31:34, God, through his prophet, promises the forgiveness of sins. And it is Jesus who we see here fulfilling that prophecy. Friends, we are just like this crippled man. Through our sin and rebellion against God, we are dead. We are broken. We have absolutely nothing that we can offer him. There is nothing that any one of us can do in our own strength to restore our relationship with God any more than this paralyzed man could make himself walk again. The truth is that all of us are spiritually dead, but the good news is that we can be healed. And the only person who can do that is Christ Jesus. The remarkable thing about this healing is that it is immediate. Just as the man immediately got up and walked out the house, in the same way, our sins are immediately forgiven when we repent and put our faith in Jesus. He is the only one who obeyed God's law perfectly and was therefore able to freely offer himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. He suffered the penalty of God's wrath for us, dying the death that each and every one of us deserve. And it is by his blood and his resurrection that we are saved. If only you would repent, turn from your sins, and rely fully on God and Christ's finished work on the cross. If you are with us today as one who is not a believer, friends, we are delighted that you are here. You know, we would love to talk to you more about what we've sung about this morning, what we've prayed about this morning, and what we've heard this morning. Come, feel free to come speak to me, to Glenn, to Lenny. But let me urge you, come to Christ. His forgiveness 
is immediate. All you have to do is come to him in faith. I want to encourage you with this reminder from Charles Spurgeon as he was talking about Christ. He says, He is perfect in his character. He has been made a sin offering for us. His promise is that he will do everything that he said. Rest upon this promise. This is saving faith. And when you turn to Christ in faith, it will be everlasting. No matter what danger, difficulties, darkness, depression, infirmities and sins come into your life, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you shall never be condemned. Don't be afraid. Simply believe, trust in God and be at rest. We should conclude and we're going to do that as we look at verses 25 and 26 where we see the response of the man who was healed and the response of the crowd that had gathered in the house. They all praised God. This is something that that should really be a daily practice for each of us. We ought to praise God for the way he has revealed himself to us through his word. We should praise him for the way he sustains us. And most importantly, praise him for how he has saved and reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus. Right at the beginning, we asked the question, what is our greatest need? Friends, don't you see that our greatest need is nothing financial, not physical or material? It is absolutely nothing that this fading world has to offer. Rather, it is the forgiveness of sins to be healed spiritually and be reconciled to God. Theologian D.A. Carson reminds us, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today humbled by the grace, the love and the mercy that you have shown to us. Lord, we are so undeserving it, deserving of it. There is nothing that any one of us can do on our own strength to, to rectify our relationship with you. Yet, Lord, in your love and your mercy, you sent us Christ Jesus. He lived that perfect life on our behalf and freely offered himself up as a sin offering, a sacrifice for us. So that any of us who turn to him and repent and put our faith in his work would be reconciled to you. Father, I pray that we would all be be reflecting this in our lives. We would be reflecting on the truth of what this means. And that ultimately, Lord, through all things, your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.